Hello and welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's public debate program. This program engages experts and an invited audience to discussions around cross-cutting issues on peace, security and leadership in Africa. In recent months, the Africa Leadership Center invited a number of scholars and politicians to give lectures on issues affecting the continent and related to leadership, peace and security. One of those scholars was Sandy Africa, Associate Professor at the Department of Political Sciences at the University of Pretoria and former Deputy Director General at the State Security Agency in South Africa. Professor Africa's lecture dealt with gender and transition processes in her country. We all know that in security features extensively. In fact, one might even say that uh, international relations is essentially the study of security and how states relate to each other, how they coexist, how they uh, conflict and how they resolve those conflicts. But um, it's a truism that in international relations and in looking at security in the context of international relations, um, what you see and how you study the phenomena are conditioned by where you sit. And I was preparing for something else just the other day when I picked up a book by Ken Booth. Uh, he is a strategy and ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism. Hmm? And um, his dedication it was particularly poignant because he said that the book was dedicated to uh, Erwin, which my um, head of department uh, told me was his, uh, his, his wife and partner and it had a profound impact on his own uh, development. And he said that the book was devoted to her, uh, who taught me, he said, that there are ways of seeing the world um, other than ways that are English, male and strategic. And I thought that that was just a, a wonderful way to, to summarize what I think he's, he's tried to do in his life's work. Um, and, well, uh, very, very, very rough uh, kind of picture, the realists versus the liberals uh, versus the Marxists, I suppose all of which translate into different schools of thoughts, the security studies uh, versus the earlier strategic studies approach, uh, the emergence of peace studies, the new thinking on security, constructivism, feminism, all of which I know that you are uh, quite aware of and which maybe have by now taken ownership of as one way uh, or ways of seeing the world, your ways of interpreting reality. So I guess these are pretty uh, personal choices, but they come from somewhere. They come from somewhere about what seems right to you. So we all uh, proceed from an ideological framing. And similarly, the study of security and international relations has uh, proceeded uh, depending on who it is that's doing the viewing from some other uh, position. Uh, but as we also know, uh, there are other big chunks of history, big chunks of sociology, big big understandings, big big pictures which are missing. And 
I suppose what's relevant to a class of this nature is the um, study of colonialism, study of um, post-colonial settings, um, which in a way also have interpreted the world, the security of nations, the security of peoples, uh, interpreted them using perhaps, uh, well, certainly different lenses. So the pan-Africanism of the early 20th century or the anti-colonial struggles of the um, 40s and 50s and 60s, the nationalist movements, the um, even different iterations of similar things, liberation theology, for example, all of which would have come to or, or propose some understanding of, of what it means to be secure, and which I'm, I'm assuming is part of what you debate and, and try to make sense of here. Uh, so, and of course gender, gender being one frame of, of these understandings which are certainly not always taken up and I must say in, in my own country South Africa has only been taken up very erratically and sporadically in relation to what happens in this, the sphere of, of security. So. Uh, so I was reading a, um, a little book to understand how a security sector governance, security sector transformation, because that is a topic I have been asked to speak about, uh, is looked at in the literature. And the truth of the matter is that as an area of study, uh, these are fairly recent concepts. Um, they've largely, well, gained prominence in national debates, not necessarily prominence in the literature, but they have uh, gained prominence in the national debates, taken on a particular hue in the post-Cold War settings, which is when we are all uh, concerned about security and maybe even well, I, I won't. Yeah, I won't say post 9/11 because that, in a way, also talks a particular view of security. Whenever so many things are seen in relation to what some have asked, uh, have called an uh, exported notion of what security is all about, so an imported notion of what all is about. But uh, was a time when. Uh, when we weren't doing checklists about whether uh, security sector transformation or reform was happening, um, when the study of security was rooted in the social science disciplines, in political science, in economics, in um, the study of anthropology, the study of sociology. And it probably is about time that we got back to some of the roots, uh, those roots which, which probably give us a much more greater leverage in accessing evidence rather than the generally normative uh, prescriptions about what the world should look like, what security should be about, quite divorced from the way in which people experience it or the way in which um, things actually are, are, are playing out. Uh, so, 
the I, I, I went back into my little archives and pulled out a rather dusty uh, book by a sociologist, a uh, South African sociologist, because I was trying to reimagine why it is, because this is the case, uh, we, we don't have a particular uh, deeply rooted scholarly, pretentious word, but by that I mean based on evidence, based on theory, understanding of security in the South African context. I went back and looked at the work of Jacqueline Cook, who is a sociologist and who had written a book in the 80s called Colonels and Cadres, War and Gender in South Africa, um, which was basically, her, her methodology was to interview scores and scores of uh, soldiers and women and people on different sides of the political divide to begin to develop a sense of what how people had internalized the different roles into which for her framework she characterized them in the framework of apartheid South Africa uh, the protectors who were by and large white males schooled in a very militarized system of uh, brutality coercion and subjugation of women the protected, who were white women who played a particular role in that uh, system, largely supported of their men folk who heroically went out to war, um, and the resistors. Um, and here I'm always reminded, I don't know why, but it struck me, uh, it's, it's just one of those, uh, those encapsulations of what women's triple oppression meant when, as a student, I read uh, Samora Michelle's uh, essay on this topic, and it was one of those that really uh, spoke to your, your heartstrings, in which he uh, argued that the oppression of women in Africa and in the context of liberation, liberation struggles have race, class dimensions, but of course also uh, gender dimensions. And indeed, in relation to South Africa, uh, I'm struck again by two perspectives. One, uh, who, which is cited by Jacqueline Cock in her book, uh, Colonels and Cadres, uh, espoused by Tandi Modise, who is currently the uh, chair of the National Council of Provinces, yeah, is she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, a past guerrilla, political prisoner, mother, uh, who in her youth had to express and make sense of all these identities, but who really experienced her own role and involvement as something uh, necessary, historically ordained, and um, uh, a generally positive experience. On the other hand, Raymond Sutner, in his book, Recovering Democracy in South Africa, uh, talks about the masculinized uh, structures of liberation movements and how this kind of uh, uh, warrior tradition, which is so, so uh, deeply ingrained in liberation uh, ideology has actually carried over into the post-apartheid setting and 
part, partially, in his view, explains uh, some of the dynamics which continue to unravel in, in South Africa today. Uh, so, this brings us to the question of what issues and identities were uh, prevalent and dominant in the South African transition in the 1990s? Um, what issues made it onto the negotiation table and, and why? Uh, what were the implications of these issues for gender relations? And uh, were there specific gender issues that were raised in relation to uh, the security sector and its uh, change and, and how indeed were they dealt with? So, as I was saying, the transition in South Africa benefited, I suppose one must say, by a very strong culture of women's resistance uh, in the liberation struggle, including, including notwithstanding the different views of Tandi Modise on the one hand saying this was a great experience, I was treated by respect by men in the camps. Sometimes we were three or five women in a camp of 500 and we only experienced uh, the greatest of respect um, at the hands of men in, in those same spaces. Um, Satna is able to invoke on the other hand accounts of women who says that they actually encountered extreme abuse at the at the hands of their male counterparts. So, you know, different lenses and perhaps different uh, respondents in whatever studies and different experiences, certainly. Uh, but a strong culture of women's resistance, including through the National uh, Democratic Movement, uh, which, uh, as the talks in the 1990s were uh, happening, gave rise to the formation of a women's coalition which cut across political boundaries. So you wouldn't believe it if you follow South African politics, but the African National Congress women, the Democratic Party women, the Encarta Freedom Party women, all of whom had occupied very different spaces politically, were able to come together and argue that there were in fact certain common experiences of women that needed to be expressed in a future political uh, landscape. And as a result, we do in fact, I do think that we can largely attribute it to that force because they then went back to their political parties and argued that when you get to the political platforms, be it the Constituents Assembly before 94 uh, or uh, the National Assembly and the Council of Provinces post 94, argue for changes in gender-based politics uh, around reproductive rights, property rights, employment uh, opportunities, and, and so on. And this, in fact, did happen, which has resulted in a fairly um, accommodating uh, landscape for women, notwithstanding the, the kind of, of, of practices that are still quite uh, prevalent. And also resulted in uh, structures which reinforced women's positions, including a gender commission, um, a constitutional body at that, a ministry for women, uh, something in the first democratic parliament called the women's budget, which was really a kind of process which ensured that the 
budgets that were passed by different parliaments were responsive to women's needs and, and demands, as well as employment equity policies in the public services. Um, sadly, sadly, uh, national liberation politics and this kind of dynamic were eventually post, uh, replaced by political competition and the implications were that women did hive off into their respective uh, political homes and identities, probably to the detriment of, of uh, a, common, a common cause. So, the research on gender and SSR in Africa, research on gender and security sector reform or uh, transformation in Africa has been uh, unfortunately lacking. Cheryl Hendricks in a volume put out by the Nordic Africa Institute uh, says that we have to be realistic. There's a paucity of research and uh, some of its current weaknesses where it does exist and as a result uh, this must also be said for the kinds of policies, the gender policies which are instituted by national governments and even the, uh, the framings which happen at the regional uh, global levels are um, utilitarian and normative more than anything else. Uh, and based on certain assumptions about what happens when women are either included or excluded, because we know that the narrative that, yes, you must have women involved and uh, your policies and SSR must be gender sensitive and you must have women uh, uh, peacekeepers. But this has really got more to do with the fact that it's operationally useful than the fact or the hope that it is going to bring about any fundamental change. So. Women are assumed to be less aggressive, they are thought to offer better protection, have women peacekeepers out in the field and you won't have so many atrocities being committed against women. Um, women will feel more assured if they are women patrolling than uh, men. Women are better uh, communicators. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that there's actually very little uh, research to support this. There, these claims, uh, there are lots of anecdotal accounts, but the, the, the concern, and this is not to throw the baby out of the bath water, because indeed there are those instances where these claims are validated by evidence, but what I think the researchers, including Cheryl Hendricks, were worried about was that these become self uh, fulfilling prophecies and very often when these results are not realized we start to scratch our heads and wonder why it is the case that um, there are still uh, atrocities being committed. You may have women out in the field and yet you still have gender-based violence taking uh, place. And is it because women have been incorrectly characterized as uh, peacekeepers or uh, is it because they aren't in positions of authority or is it because when the boys go out to have fun they 
you know, they, they withdraw and a gut sense tells them, well, let me not go off on that jaunt. Or what is it? And all they're asking for is that all the researchers, or this volume was asking for, that let's get back to evidence-based research so that our policies can really be more responsive than they have been. Nearly done. So, indeed, it is the case that the key security issues for women, and this was the case in South Africa, it's the case all over uh, in conflict situations and uh, in the immediate post-conflict situations, very often, certainly on the African continent, are levels of state-sponsored violence. Uh, in South Africa, you know, women were just as likely to be tortured and beaten and detained and imprisoned for lengthy periods during uh, the apartheid period uh, were caught up in so-called black-on-black violence, uh, the internecine violence, uh, internecine violence uh, in the 80s uh, under the cloak of the state of emergency. So, that kind of violence was not discriminating and so they have every interest in ensuring that the political conditions that would reverse that situation were not uh, perpetuated. Uh, they bore the burden of socio-economic conditions of poverty, of inequality, of unemployment. They bore the burden and continued to do so uh, of gender discrimination of discriminatory uh, customary practices under a patriarchal system and the structural impacts of apartheid on family life, social cohesion in general, the way in which workplaces were situated far away from uh, residential areas, making traveling uh, to and from work uh, hazardous and dangerous apart from expensive. Those were some of the issues. and. Um, so these had to be addressed in the context of both the, the, the transition as well as uh, in, for prosperity, um, posterity. Uh, and you probably know quite a bit about our multi-party negotiations as I've alluded to. Some of these issues were addressed. Um, but there were generic processes of demobilization, of armed forces, disarmament, reintegration, which affected women and men, um, the reintegration, uh, which in the context of a, a sensitive political system, which uh, was at the same time trying to address racial fragmentation and uh, all sorts of hierarchies, did try to insert some provisions that would give women's particular situation uh, attention. So in a, holding up a gender lens, I suppose we then need to answer the question, um, you know, security for whom, um, security by whom, uh, security by what means and methods, uh, security in whose interests, and relevant to yourselves, I suppose we should ask security under whose leadership and does who leads these processes uh, make a difference? And uh, security overseen by whom? What is the role of the guardians? Who will guard the guardians and with what lens do they view the world? 
And as in relation to IR, as I was saying at the beginning, um, where you sit really determines what you see and what you pay attention to. And this certainly probably was the case in the South African transition. Um, so, yeah. I was asked, but I'm not going to talk about that now, also to talk about the, how all this played out in relation to the intelligence services. We can come back to that. Uh, yeah. But where we are with the gender agenda in South Africa today is 20 years down the line, we have just had a defense review. We are in the middle of a police review and I bumped into someone who told me that like the defense people who have actually had gone through both the, uh, well, the, the police people who've gone through both the green paper and have now released a white paper, have a look at them and see if there are any gender impacts. Um, I haven't been able to pick up uh, particularly focused uh, areas of those documents on gender. Uh, the intelligence services have also gone through a, um, an intelligence white paper review. But unfortunately, all this takes place in the absence of a cohesive and coherent overarching national security policy framework in South Africa. And when people are challenged about this, people in the security sector, they say, well, you need to read everything together. But it does talk to a lack of uh, cohesion, I think, that there isn't an overarching framework and that uh, in the meantime, these different strands have been developed by the professionals and the uh, executives in those lines of work with very little transversal uh, input from other sectors in the security cluster or even uh, the rest of uh, government or, or civil society for, for that matter. So unlike the 1990s, the reviews that we are experiencing today are not particularly gendered. Uh, it's a different moment and of course a post-conflict situation is a very opportune minute, a moment to change a lot because the state itself is being restructured. So here we are dealing with kind of incremental change, although uh, we are told by a political uh, parties, particularly the ANC, that they really do see the phase that it is in, that we are in at the moment, as a second transition, um, which will be characterized by very fundamental reform, including ownership of the means of production, and so the policies are meant to be geared in that direction. But it is questionable whether that is the case, and in fact, the trade unions, for example, feel that all that is happening is a neoliberal sellout rather than anything very fundamental. And they say, well, uh, the ruling party is actually in cahoots with big business rather than, uh, than uh, having the interests of workers and the unemployed at, at heart. So the gender agenda is colored by, as I said, uh, this contestation, really, because that is what it is. Uh, where previously, 20 years ago, the forces were f probably more starkly opposed uh, the, the moment was more opportune, but there's a lot of political contestation about what, what a good life means and for different um, elements of society. What does a good life mean for 
uh, the unemployed youth? What does a good life mean for the women? That um, uh, endless and, and timeless p political question, uh, philosophical question. So um, there are all a range of, of other questions and interpretations around what is happening to the security forces, the security sector, the security services as we call them then, but increasingly the language of force is, being, uh, is coming back into the, uh, the, the discourse. And Jane Duncan, in her book, The Rise of the Securocrats, The Rise of the Securocrats, argues that uh, excessive se secrecy, um, the uh, disregard or increasing uh, marginalization of, of uh, civil society, the dispensing with human rights is all part of a culture in which, as in apartheid, where the hawks and doves clashed, but the doves eventually uh, triumphed. That's one uh, narrative about the South African transition. What is happening is that, again, the securocrats, the hawks and the doves are engaged in a struggle, and it does look as though the hawks are on the ascendancy. Raymond Sattner, in his book, uh, Recovering Democracy in South Africa, I think, uh, talks about um, the rise of uh, what he, he describes as hyper-patriarchy, hyper-masculinity as a, a very worrying feature of the political agenda which has caused to leave women afraid rather than as, as secure in the country of their birth. So in conclusion, in conclusion, uh, I suppose when should be looking at what this all means for research and what we need to study and how we need to understand uh, the world. And again, it's uh, Hendricks who in Beyond Gender and Stir, and the title is meant to suggest that what's happening is that you have your body politic and it seems as though with this cottage industry of gender and SSR, you just add a bit of gender, stir it up and you know there's your new formula and it shouldn't be that way. But she does pose certain questions for a research agenda, including uh, experiences of women in conflict and in the post-conflict situation, strategies for what has been done by women in conflict and post-conflict situations to counter violence and the continuation of violence, understanding masculinity, and uh, Maria Bars and Maria Stern in their article in the NAI uh, volume uh, say that uh, we have many assumptions about what male soldiers, for example, want, and quite frankly, it isn't always what the literature uh, suggests that they might want when you look concretely, and they looked at the case of the, of the, the DRC. Um, so we need to understand also the contributions and challenges of women leaders in the security sector, um, but more importantly, the larger political and economic dynamics which are shaping security and the gender impacts that these are. Have. So I, in conclusion, really want to say that, uh, I don't know if you, as the point of selecting your, your 
research topics, but this is an area, uh, gender and SSR, which is crying out for, for greater um, studies. And I don't even know if to call it gender and SSR, but understanding gender dynamics in the context of transitions is important. I can see how it served us very well in the South African uh, context. We did, unfortunately, maybe drop the ball, although there, was, there were some good moments. Um, but go back to the disciplines of, uh, because you all come from particular disciplines, be it political science, economics, or sociology, or anthropology, or, you know, whatever, um, IR. Um, go back to those disciplines, because I think they are rich in tools for understanding the world in a way that some of these rather blunt and not even uh, particularly well-formed policy, um, policy instruments, and then they, they are really instruments, they're not even really understandings of the policy process. Uh, those would tend to be the kind of dipstick in this, in this world of understanding gender don't serve us as well as uh, the rich, and I think uh, the few studies that are starting to come out are very promising, so they prove in a way that empirical research, evidence-led research, is important for uh, advancing appropriate policy interventions. Okay. So, thank you. Yeah, before I go into the question section, is anyone writing his dissertation on issues surrounding gender? Anyone writing anything that relates to gender? Okay, yeah, that should be kind of. I mean, uh, I mean, is any uh, how many kind ofs do you have? Okay, two of you. So you you like to find this this very very helpful. Perhaps I should use my my prerogative to ask the first question, and um, it has to do with my own understanding of the whole thing. Let me ask you. To what extent did you actually learn anything from Zimbabwe in the process of your in the process of addressing your security sexual reform? Especially the gender dimension. Any lesson at all from Zimbabwe? Um not particularly Zimbabwe. But the framework within which the entire South African um, process took place was very much conditioned by our, our understandings of, um, and in fact involvement of the Organization of African Unity, which really was an ardent champion and which um, was largely instrumental in its international mobilization campaign in um, putting pressure, setting out the terms of reference. Uh, and those, I think, were drawn from, those were drawn, I think, from uh, the liberation experiences of other African countries. And in the South African context, the frontline states, very relevant. So. Uh, as I said, their experience of um, uh, women uh, 
soldiers, or at least as articulated by leaders in the in the um, in the Mozambican uh, struggle, for example, very very important and inspirational. South Africa also had bases in Mozambique, and that also conditioned them. So. Um, I would say that the example of liberation struggles in general in the frontline states were broadly uh, influential okay. in, uh, one, uh, making it very clear that women do have a role. Women can be soldiers and fighters, and, um, but uh, that, in fact, uh, and this was why we, we also were very concerned that what happens to women afterwards should be written in because our our understanding was that uh, almost immediately after the post-colonial struggles women tended to be drawn back into their traditional roles and we didn't want that to happen and that certainly seemed to have been in the case in many of these countries where there had been struggles that's interesting. I mean, on another note, you mentioned Jackie Cook. Mm -hmm. Is she still around? Yeah, yeah, and she's uh, doing work on the environment, one of the, you know, okay. the, the, the new issues. She was, she was quite helpful to me <laughs> yeah. many years ago yeah. when I was in the okay. PhD. Yeah. Maybe I'll come back later. Right. Oh, that must have been so... Sp you, you, have the, you have the question well ready because you instantly you raise up your hand, so... Uh -huh. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm trying. I'm scratching around for my pen. Okay, okay can I use this? Questions? Shall we share don't one? Don't okay, great. Yeah. Hello, Stephanie. Um, my question is more Um, okay, maybe a few questions. Yeah, there are others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my question was to if you look at Scotland, when it was uh, in the 90s, during the time of Mbeki, uh, Mbeki came, at this time when Zuma is in, I mean, are you proud of it? Is it the institution that you would say it was what when you guys were, when your people are trying to conceive? Revolutionize it, try to make it modern. Is it the kind of institution that actually has made up its its space or its pride? Is it really effective as it were, or do you think there has been a change in terms of its effectiveness and its role in the society? Mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you for your presentation. Somehow related with uh, what Stephen has brought uh, uh, for you. My question is, how do you assess the, the overall security uh, uh, apparatus, apparatus of South Africa? How they, for example, recently there have been uh, uh, reports that South Africa is one of the most unsafe places in the world. And then you can also notice that uh, there have been uh, political instability in South Africa. So how do you assess the government is unable to provide security to, to society? And then there are some regions which private security companies have been providing security to society. So how do you assess the overall security structures in the parts of the country? Mm -hmm. 
Okay, okay. maybe we will take um, those three. Thanks for all those. Okay, let's, maybe we take these three first. Yeah, okay. All very incisive questions. Yeah, you say that your, uh, your assessment, uh, Stephanie, is that the focus in the South African um, SSR uh, processes has been on institution. So I suppose um, with that understanding, there is um, uh, implicit in what you're asking is that um, what else ought to have been, or perhaps there is something else that you perceive they, they ought to have been and maybe that other element is institutional culture um, the role of um, women in society the impact you know because why do you why do you have these these processes if not to impact uh, so your question, and I'm not sure if you're asking just generally or in relation to gender, um, but I think you're asking more generally. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, yeah. So indeed, yes, that, 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 that had been the case, that there was a very strong focus on changing the institutions, because that in itself was a mammoth task. Um, you have to understand that the institutions under apartheid had really been either designed to uphold a system or to keep down a people and you needed to kind of even the the playing field so that those institutions served all they were demographically representative and so in the integration processes they uh, effort to made to ensure that people from all parts of the country, from all parts of the demographic, um, women, men, um, black, white, young, old, you know, disabled, uh, gender, different genders, all those had to be uh, accommodated. Um, in new institutions, essentially, but which really were, to be honest, uh, institutions which carry a lot of the old with them and so that's that's just reality so even that process of trying to change things that were not completely destroyed and dismantled gave rise to new contestations new power struggles within those 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 organizations um, but in order to do what? In order to deliver services, in order, say in the case of policing, to no longer, firstly, uh, because the mandates had to be changed, no longer detain political opponents, but to combat crime, prevent crime. Uh, and not just in the white suburbs of South Africa, but all over the place, in the rural areas, in the very impoverished uh, Transkei, in the uh, places where, you know, police were just feared if they were seen at all. So, um, these, and by, by uh, under what ethos? No longer in the context of a highly militarized society um, at war with its neighbors. So many things had to change and it is possible. And in fact, uh, it's been acknowledged that the way in which the changes happened were uneven. 
that there was a great emphasis on changing institutions and the uh, ethos within institutions, but that the delivery has been uh, generally uneven and in some areas of the security sector particularly more than, than others. Also, um, I suppose this is the case all over. We can talk of a honeymoon period uh, where things seem to go well because it was so obvious what needed to be done. <laughs> but after a while, things, you, you know, the, the resistance um, starts getting greater because you've, you've passed the hurdle of the obvious and things just get tougher and tougher, not necessarily easier and easier as you go along. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's, it would not be correct to say that they haven't addressed the issues because there have been far-reaching changes. I mean, just the, <laughs> um, the fact of political participation uh, without fear, largely, <laughs> of uh, recrimination or repression, at least certainly not uh, institutionalized. Uh, is great. The fact that there is a, an inclusive political system, a multi-party political system, that uh, there's the system tolerates. It's what people do with the system, I suppose, which is the problem. So um, the best I can do by way of an answer is to say that, yes, there's been a lot of progress, but there's a lot that remains to be done. <laughs> okay, then on the question of the, the scorpions, uh, actually disbanded, but I do understand uh, that you also are aware that a new institution uh, came into being. They call it the Hawks, now a part of the South African Police Services. The difference between the scorpions and the Hawks is that the scorpions had a kind of independent uh, status. Um, and the, uh, under the National Prosecuting Authority, and that had been based on a particular model. Um, I remember our debates about it, and the model was that you needed to have investigations and prosecutions and uh, in the same, and intelligence actually in the same, under the same umbrella, that they should talk to each other. Uh, years down the line, I think colored by political um, expediency. There was a view that that shouldn't be the case and that the Hawks should essentially be part of the police and uh, simply uh, be an investigative part of arm um, of the South African Police Service. Um, well, to a large extent, they've, uh, it's said that they have benefited uh, from being part of the infrastructure of the police service. But what is better known and gets greater publicity is um, those instances for which these institutions have become rather infamous, infamous, um, particularly the infighting among themselves um, and how the the infighting goes right up to the heads, the political heads of the institutions, and uh, those who 
say that it was a mistake probably have a lot of muscle when they say you see when these institutions were independent they could not be so corrupted but in fact we find and the evidence is coming out that uh, these the manipulation of institutions has a long long genealogy that it has been going on for a lot longer um, and even whilst the scorpions were independent uh, recent uh, revelations show that the executive still had access and maybe the issue is more around a number of other important big questions in political science uh, the relationship between the party and the state the relationship between the accountability of the executive the power of the executive in relation to other arms the checks and balances in in the political system more more than anything else so yeah the, you know the hawks as an arm of the police if you were just to read about them you'd say yes wonderful rhino poaching and um, paddle moon smuggling and all sorts of other things which are quite big because th that's a specialized unit which deals with organized crime um, but in relation to certain high-profile uh, crimes or alleged crimes it does seem as though there has been an inordinate amount of political interference which has undermined uh, their role quite substantially and has had a great and negative impact on how the institution is uh, seen. So could you say that the power, the leadership, control of the security, the intelligence and security services, lies likely, is it on a cartel at the political level, or is it within the ANC dynamics, or it is always shifting, depending on who is in power? Um. Yeah, um, and I suppose that, well, maybe it's a, it's a different question, the state of, of security. Um, I don't know if you call it a cartel. Uh, Jane Duncan, in her book, The Rise of the Securitocrats, uh, suggests that there is a kind of shadow state instead, uh, which is operating under increasing secrecy. Um, but one of the deficits, one of the deficiencies is that in, in, in the negotiation process, and I, I suppose that um, the institutions were generally weighted in favor of, uh, or oversight of the institutions was generally, not, not exclusively, weighted in favor of the governing party, which does happen to have been the ANC throughout the 21-year history. And depending on the dynamics in the political parties, uh, in the ANC particularly, uh, how those responsibilities, oversight responsibilities, have been played out has actually been a function of what's happening in, in the party. So the more independent the institution, uh, the more insulated it is from interference. So for example, I think that our uh, Auditor General, our Public Protector, where these institutions and the individuals who happen to be appointed don't necessarily owe their 
their allegiance, their dues to the political uh, masters are more insulated from interference than, for example, I think, people who serve on the parliamentary oversight committees because um, those are appointed really uh, whilst Parliament appoints, in, at the end of the day, it is the caucuses within Parliament which do the political party caucuses. So there's probably space for a conversation around how power is moderated and modulated. And of course, uh, political pressure becomes important because I think that when people are in power, the most advantageous system to them is the one that they're going to hang on to. I mean, if I was a politician, I'd be quite happy with things the way they are, rather than choosing another path of greater resistance because I'm going to have to answer more questions. Um, and unfortunately, for the people who happen to serve in the political structures, uh, you know, for their own careers, probably, they are kind of accommodating, which suggests that um, the identities are still very much uh, vested in the political parties rather than the institutional roles that they are supposed to play. I don't know what changes that. Is it a kind of maturity? Is it a kind, uh, is it a, a, a space where that is encouraged? Probably it is and boils down to leadership once again. Um, if there was a leadership that said, do not be afraid to speak out when you see things which are happening uh, that are wrong in Parliament. Maybe you would have more uh, you know, of the people there speaking out. Um, it's starting to happen, but interestingly, it's only because uh, Parliament has been given a bit of a jolt because we've got all sorts of interesting players now. We've got the EFF, the Economic Freedom Fighters, led by Julius Malema, broke away from the ANC and is now giving them a run for their money. Uh, you've got a democratic alliance which has made many gains, uh, including capturing some of the uh, traditional voters of the ANC. So um, I think that um, a lot has to, yeah, the, the contestation itself has caused the ruling a party to realize that unless it is also seen to be a vigorous energetic party responsive to uh, its own constituencies needs and demands they could well be in greater trouble so, yeah. and then as for the overall assessment of the security situation and the security apparatus Oh, that's, um, I can only say again that what you see <laughs> depends on where you sit <laughs> or where you stand. And, well, I would not certainly say that the country is on the point of a total collapse. Some would say, um, I mean, my president says, well, what's wrong with all of this? This is just robust. It's lovely. It's great for people to be um, so conflicted. It just shows that there's a space to engage and to debate. Um, and that's true to an extent. But, you know, I saw for the very first time that when he delivered his budget vote this year, our Minister for State Security uh, said that one of the focuses of the intelligence services 
would be a focus on insurgency. Now that for me was very interesting because um, it means that somewhere there's an emerging characterization of the political conflict as an insurgency. <laughs> and what do you have when you have, how do you deal with insurgencies? You have counter-insurgency operations and that's taking well, us think, back to... Yes, I think maybe, maybe it just misused the word. Well, I hope so. Yes, I, I strongly think so. Well, you're like, very, uh, <laughs> you have great confidence. I'm worried because I read it in... Um, well, there are, there are grounds for apprehension, really, mm -hmm. obviously. But... Um, you think he made a mistake. I must go and speak I, I, to him, whisper I choose to believe that it was a mistake because, mm -hmm. like, um, for those of us who come from countries where we know the correct definition of insurgency, yeah, yeah. we know really that South Africa is, is, <laughs> is, not, is, is not in any way close. Mm -hmm. But maybe I should just ask that another question, slightly related. What do you see as the future of the ANC? Is mm -hmm. it, it's, not, it's not really related to your presentation, but at least it's still mm -hmm. partly connected. Yeah. What do you see as the future of the ANC? Is, 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 is the party on a life support machine or mm. is it okay? Well, I don't know. And quite frankly, um, I mean, uh, I suppose it's, it's, yeah, I try very hard to be objective. I, I'm one of those people who, having once been in the ANC, um, and quite frankly assumed by many of my colleagues still to be in it, Are you um, in the sense that uh, I am not an active member. Okay. Uh, and when we had debates about what should happen to those of us who went into the uh, security institutions and there was a, uh, a view that uh, conflating politics and, and security could be quite dangerous and I think that's been borne out. Um, I personally took a decision that, well, I'm, I'm not going to involve myself in party political uh, elements, but you still feel very, very concerned about what is, is going on. and. Um, from that vantage point of an almost uh, subjective onlooker hoping that this very important institution that has achieved so much for the people of, of South Africa, uh, I nevertheless do try objectively to assess where it is going and it does seem as though there is a hankering on the one hand, after the old, that things can be one day the way they were. And I don't think so. I think that that, as well as almost an exhortation of the past. So leaders tend to say, well, this is who we are. We have this wonderful, proud history. But in reality, you're dealing with a very different dynamic. And quite frankly, if you're honest with yourself, you're doing very different things. <laughs> um, you're uh, colluding as a leader with business and with um, all sorts of interest groups which have nothing to do with where you come from. So there's a, a level at which uh, what the ANC was, it will never be again, okay. notwithstanding the fact that some insist on calling it a national liberation movement. But in truth, it is now a political party 
which ought to play by the rules of the political space which it was party to creating for all other political players uh, in, in fairness. Um, yeah. Okay. Now let's. Yeah, sorry, sorry, oh, okay. No, I, th I, 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 I thought. Your story, I'm still waiting for, for my answer. You no, just joined it. No, she, she, she has answered the question. No, no, I don't. I mean, the only thing that I can understand it depends on the person. Yeah, no. In my, from my point of view, I see that there's um, many grounds for concern. Um, high levels of crime, of course, we all know that, and you pointed out, I'm just stating the obvious. Um, and also, almost after a period where we were dealing with the issues, reasonably well, a decline in the capacity, uh, which could be ascribed to uh, leadership deficits. If you look at the security uh, institutions, very, very uh, weak leadership, um, some of them in complete disarray, um, some of them with people marginalized and pushed out and being uh, subject to all sorts uh, of very public forms of harassment. So under those conditions, the people who work within the institutions really lacking in morale, so low levels of morale in the police, in the uh, intelligence services, uh, to some extent they say in defense, and um, almost a, uh, you know, Raymond Sutner in his book, uh, Recovering Democracy, uh, has it's a set of little chapters, or short little chapters that he's written over a, a five-year period or so. And one of these essays is called um, The Ship of State is Half Sinking, Half Sailing. And in a way, that is a, an unfortunate um, but almost correct characterization. So uh, Inst states institutions at the moment are not doing very well. Uh, they are half sinking, half sailing. But the thing is, they are half sailing. <laughs> so is the glass half empty or is it half full? I think we prefer to see it as half full, and yet, quite frankly, in the public perception, it's it's half empty, and that's that's worrying. And some say even uh, less than half. So, not a very good situation. Uh, however, somehow, uh, same goes for the economic situation. 2% growth, um, we would have liked more, but some say, but that's still growth. <laughs> Europe's got no growth, <laughs> or North Korea or something. We still have 2%, but it um, depends on what you want to compare yourself with, and um, it's certainly not making any dent in the 60% youth unemployment the high levels of uh, poverty, uh, which are mitigated only by an extensive system of social grants, but take that away and you find that people are really in, in a very dire situation. I would have loved to ask a question about this xenophobic attack, but maybe not. not um, okay, Jacob Benjaya. In very many transitional contexts, women are very active in transitional processes, whether it is conflict or peace building processes. For example, in Sierra Leone, we are very active 
women organizations who are spearheading those specific processes. But this really rarely translates into policy and practice. What are some, some of the challenges of gender mainstreaming uh, uh, security policy so, or, in, in, uh, or translating these security policies into practice? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, I'll. Uh, let me. Thanks. I'll, I've noted and I'll hear yes, the other yeah, question. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, my question is uh, looking at the context of South Africa, see a country that is in transition, in my opinion, from the upper side, um, where, you know, how prominent is this really gender issue? Uh, when you're looking at security, and in terms of security, in terms of the needs of the individual, uh, you know, I think um, the, the risk issue is a more important factor in determining security to the individual and gender. So how prominent is it really mm -hmm. that uh, you know, when you're discussing security, in the transition, the context of that transition, uh, the gender you know, uh, plays out in the mm -hmm. Okay. In South Africa. Yeah, okay. Um, Is there another question? Okay. No, 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 please, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my interest is uh, to what extent the South African establishment uh, takes seriously the issue of xenophobic attack mm -hmm. in relation to other issues that they have uh, to deal with in South Africa. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, great. Uh, Excuse me, please. Who knows where to turn off this thing? I've been suffering in silence for quite some time. <laughs> mm -hmm. how you f it's a bit cold for me. Or you, I'm all right. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Don't worry. I'll brave it. Don't worry. <laughs> we can turn it off. It can turn it off. Is that? Is it from, from where? Please, go and do it, please. You were pointing boldly, so you should know where it is. <laughs> Hmm. I'll listen to practice. Okay. Shall we go on? Uh, okay. Yes. Policy into practice. Um, yeah. Yes. I mean, uh, South Af as I said, in the South African context, to women's coalition identified all the key issues around, um, you know, mater from maternity leave to rights in the equal pay for equal work, uh, right to education for the girls, all sorts of things that had not even been there uh, in under apartheid really, uh, with women being right at the bottom of the pile. Uh, so on top of that, just the general oppression also being victims of, of gendered violence as, as, as well. Uh, and so an initial period of uh, hello professor Fumi how are you <laughs> okay of um, of putting these things into to policies into practice great success 
and they are there. It's not like there have been reversals of them. People have not been able to come away and say, well, it was a mistake, get back into the kitchen and, and don't uh, participate in public life. Uh, yes, you should actually be earning half of what men are earning and so onwards. In relation to the armed forces, uh, well, those institutions were, and the, the security forces, those uh, incorporated those few women. They made efforts by setting targets to increase the number of women, to have policies that were inclusive, um, that protected women, for example, policies against sexual harassment and so onwards. But there has been a gap between uh, policy uh, development or the policy generation and policy implementation. So there are policies that look very nice on paper, but in practice uh, things are not what they should be. And there are, if not, uh, they are anecdotal, but sometimes even a verified account of uh, abuse, exploitation, uh, in the institutions, including the security institutions, uh, which are very hierarchical with male leaders largely, where women are drawn in. It isn't necessarily the case that they are, have a protective role. I remember a, a time where we, uh, this was under the Mbeki administration, where some of the small the senior women in management took the initiative and we fortunately in that period happened to have women ministers leading the intelligence, I think, the police, foreign affairs. Uh, so they were supportive of an initiative which we took ourselves to talk about gender in, in the security cluster. Um, correctional services, I think, was also involved. So we were looking at the specific uh, position of women, but it, it took a kind of activism, and quite frankly, uh, the long-term impacts weren't really felt because some of us were then moved to other institutions, others resigned, the ministers were, were shifted sideways, and I remember that, for example, in the intelligence services, we got our minister to pledge that within the next five years there would be a woman director general. I mean, that was a very long-term goal. <laughs> and that didn't happen, in fact. It only happened under the current president, President Zuma, two years ago. But, you know, even there, the impact of that director general has not been to, to change the position of women. So I do think it is one of those areas that requires a lot of uh, activism, um, leadership, but also activism from, from below. You have to both have the will to lead in a particular direction, but also to agitate or else and light a bit of a fuse or else these things won't happen. There just isn't that consciousness in our society, which is very traditional, actually, and hierarchical and patriarchal. Those, those elements are still there, and they kind of get reinforced in supposedly normalized, and normalization actually also involves the normalization of, of violence. Um, so how prominent gender is in um, South Africa, uh, so politically, uh, you say that you see that 
the race is a more dominant uh, issue. And indeed, in the last couple of weeks, months, uh, where students, your counterparts, have been burning statues, <laughs> there's a Roads Must Fall campaign, and at all other institutions, you know, students have been painting statues under very much under the leadership of you know populist um, uh, movements on the campuses, uh, out in society like the EFF. Uh, there, the, the debate has been cast as one between black and white, <coughs> how things have fundamentally not changed in racial terms. But that's because that it's true, that is true. But more importantly, or just as importantly, there are also uh, big lags in relation to uh, class politics and gender politics, those are also deficiencies where worker protections are very, very much under threat, as are the um, protections of women. So I don't think that racial politics uh, should be privileged. Um, and when political parties themselves start playing into that, it is often at the expense of, of other uh, equally uh, or more important um, divides in, in society. On the question of um, how serious the South African establishment has been in fighting xenophobia, I think that is the question. Mm. Please. <laughs> I just wanted to know if there ever a debate or a dialogue about, about what role gender plays in effectiveness of leaders. Do you always have any conversations about uh, whether women play, you know, uh, whether women in leadership positions are more effective than men or vice versa? Is there ever in this year, Peterson's uh, transformation has that been an issue? Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I think we were just talking earlier about the role of the women's coalition um, in agitating for uh, change in the 1990s, um, but how after a time where some important victories had been scored, women leaders tended to recede into their party political uh, homes uh, or take on those identities um, and probably at the expense of agitating for, for uh, sustained change, monitoring the implementation of some of these gains that, that they had made. Um, and I think made because they were women uh, sensitive to those issues. Uh, instead, what is happening more than the uh, leadership around around uh, gender uh, is that the conversations, pockets of conversations that have been held, uh, but not very, very systematically, in my view, have been around um, masculinity, 
um, and what this means for um, uh, leadership. <laughs> uh, because the argument has been that we are, uh, we've been concerned, uh, so concerned with empowering women, but at the same time, we are not actually paying much attention to shaping, reshaping the consciousness of, of men. And we're just taking it as a given that the way in which they see themselves, the, uh, these, these identities uh, that shape their often very negative behavior are not being challenged. So for example, um, we have a movement of men, which is now also challenging um, the, um, the, the, the roles and the uh, identity that men are supposed to, to, to take. But on the whole, I think that um, there are too few conversations, too few conversations about leadership at all, <laughs> uh, even about gender and leadership. Uh, I keep going back to Raymond Sutner's book, uh, maybe it's because it's one of the most recent things that I've read, <laughs> Recovering Democracy in South Africa. And one of his, uh, uh, I don't know, say less than a thousand words, these essays of his, one of them is called Politics Without Politics. <laughs> and he... Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the, he's saying that what is characteristic of the, the current conjuncture is that we have politics without substance. It's much more about political patronage in relation to business deals and all sorts of other things rather than the actual realities of people's lives um, and how you change them. So I think that um, there's a great space for a discussion on, on leadership um, and what it means to, to be a leader uh, because leadership is very much vested in political um, positions and so the struggles are all about becoming the chair of a party political branch because that will get you to access I don't know, a position on the provincial seat mm -hmm. and maybe a great big tender for providing services <laughs> or the national something equivalent. It's not about positions. It's about, um, yeah, positions and influence, but not even influence to change lives. Uh, influence for um, ob objectives uh, that are rather self-serving more than anything else. Um, so, and then back to the question about how seriously the establishment takes xenophobia. Um, look, seriously, but in my view, in the wrong way. Um, and for, again, very instrumentalist kind of, of, of reasons. At least that's my personal interpretation of the way in which the responses have played out. Because um, xenophobic violence, xenophobic violence um, has its roots in a kind of mindset and I don't think that the government has done enough to challenge and sh uh, respond to things as they were developing on the ground. Um, 
Yes, it is true that we do have a problem of very porous borders. We have a very uh, accommodating um, kind of refugee policy. And yes, it's true that people uh, in the township started to become very concerned when they tried, someone tried to set up a shop and then next thing found three or four other shops often owned by foreign uh, merchants in their neighborhoods. Uh, but the, 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 the myths and the, uh, uh, that arose out of those were completely out of proportion and I don't think government has really responded. So you'd find from very senior people, most ridiculous claims, you know, there are 10 million uh, Zimbabweans in South Africa. I don't even know that <laughs> Zimbabwe has <laughs> a population. So, yes, but, you know, and if we don't send them back to their countries, they, they will uh, just overrun our services. So, um, apart from not challenging myths uh, adequately, Apart from, in part, uh, fueling uh, these perceptions, some of the measures taken have been wrong. Very belatedly, uh, especially after, not after, even after 2008, where in spite of the scores of people who, who died, uh, I think the statistic is that there was one conviction or, or none. <laughs> uh, now, Yes, there have been 300 arrests. Let's see how many convictions there will be. And then there has been a, 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 a follow-up uh, action by the security forces. This has been the primary response, uh, trying to root out criminals who are embedded among, they claim, uh, areas where there happen to be foreign nationals, which gives a very worrying picture. But. What's what's happening? And I don't know if we mustn't be looking for whether this is a generalized phenomenon. This notion, uh, a kind of post 9-11 notion, in my view, of, um, of migrants uh, being the source of problems, of homeland security being a new front of, of security has been quite successfully exported all over. I think our African governments have taken it up quite strongly. Um, so these little uh, Berlin Conference borders <laughs> that we found ourselves with after 18... What is it? 1884? 1870. 1884, uh, the logical conclusion is that there's going to be crime and violence and terrorism. Um, and this seems to be a kind of um, exported notion, just, you know, all of you have your homeland security intact and, and you will be fine. That, uh, in right. any cases, is quite contrary to the notion of regional integration, which does require and which we tentatively move towards talking about open borders, um, but 
uh, we certainly are back in that mode in South Africa where we are talking about tightening our borders. So this is the response, and in my view, it's a rather um, a poor and, and shallow response, which ought to have been about how okay. to integrate uh, people into the communities, but also to have a serious conversation uh, with the region, to put pressure um, on other uh, political uh, leaders about the conditions in, in their own countries. But yeah, um, so serious, but for the wrong reasons and in the wrong ways, in my opinion. I think you have, you have answered of what would have been my next extension as to ask whether there are specific reasons why the xenophobic attacks are targeting Nigerians. Or maybe why, what is it that South Africa has against Nigerians? <laughs> well, there's no Nigerian these days, but, but yeah. that's true. But really, there was a time, Africans, really. Africans in general. Okay, no, well, maybe well, well, if it's Africans in general, then mm -hmm. that, makes, that makes it to be unfortunate, but at least we, mm -hmm. we know that it's... Yeah, 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 well, mm -hmm. because like many reasons came to my mind. Could it be because of TB Joshua? <laughs> no, no, really, could it be because of TB Joshua? Could, why is it? Because, like, well, I know who he is. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> who would know who TB Joshua is? But, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I, I think, I think, in a way, you, you, have, you, you have actually answered the question. Really. So, if, if it is not, well, thank you very much. Sandy Africa. Associate Professor at the Department of Political Sciences at the University of Pretoria and former Deputy Director General at the State Security Agency in South Africa. Thank you for listening to Public Debate on the ALC Pan-African Radio. For this and other programs, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Centre.